Welcome to the next in a series of Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine podcast, brought to you by SAM Ramps. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to our Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine podcast. My name is Emily Wanamaker Gibbs. I'm a resident at the University of Rochester, and I'm here today with Dr. Derek Cass. She's the Assistant Clinical Professor of Emergency Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. She's also the Director for Equity and Inclusion for the Emergency Department and the founder of FEMINEM. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. Let's start out by hearing a little bit about your background, kind of what drew you to emergency medicine. So my story about emergency medicine, I was born into it, literally. So my mother was an emergency medicine nurse for the first part of her career as a nurse. So she graduated from nursing school in 1966. But if you ever tell her that I told you that, she will kill me because <laughs> math never goes away. And then she graduated and she worked in the ER. And she actually worked in the ER at a hospital called Brookdale Hospital, which is in Brooklyn. And I was born in that hospital while she was an ER nurse. What's ironic is after I decided to do residency in emergency medicine, I rotated through Brookdale Hospital as a doctor. And so people looked at me sideways when I got there because they were like, you look a lot like a nurse that used to work here. (laughs) And I was like, that was my mom. So it's a very small town story for a Brooklyn experience. Was there anything in particular that drew you to the field of emergency medicine? Yeah, everything. I mean, taking it back to my mom, when I was a kid, you know, she would say to me, you can't go out July 4th because people come into the ER with their fingers blown off from firecrackers. And I was like, that's cool. Where can I go and put fingers back on hands that get blown off from firecrackers? And that was the beginning of me being interested in emergency medicine. And the truth is, medicine is fun and it's a game and you get to figure out the magic of being there for people when they don't expect to need you and the interesting experiences of being a diagnostician. And I never, ever thought of a purer form of medicine than being an ER doctor. I loved almost everything about medical school clinically, right? I I didn't love psych, I guess. But I really, I loved a lot of the experiences, especially the procedural ones. And so it seemed pretty natural that I was going to be an emergency medicine doctor. It's nice to hear that story and how that relates to your childhood, that it just seems like it was kind of your destiny. Yes, I was born for this, to quote some (laughs) candidates for presidents. I was born for this. (laughs) So one of your biggest focuses in emergency medicine is the promotion of women Mm -hmm. in this field. And you have founded FEMINEM. Tell us a little bit about your motivation for creating the organization and your vision. So FEMINEM started in 2015. And I was already doing a fair amount of work in education before that. We had been doing work on disruptive education. So podcasts were a little newer then, but Twitter and um, using social media and blogs and really trying to innovate education to decrease knowledge translation, to quote an excellent podcaster, from 17 years to just under a year for clinical knowledge. Yet we were doing nothing about our experiences as humans. And I was really, really involved with AWEM, the Academy of Women in Academic Emergency Medicine. And we'd been putting out these great newsletters, and people had been discussing their experiences. Like, every year we'd come together at SAM, and I would learn that people had been solving the same problems I was solving, right? So if it was maternity leave at that point in my life, or lactation, or gender bias in promotion, and I realized that nobody was really talking to each other, but there was also, like, no historical memory of the experiences we were having, yet they were so repetitive, right? Mm -hmm. And so I said, how can I create a space that people can connect, and that their experiences, specifically articles that they were writing, would have a place that people could find them, a searchable database of information and a connection space. Mm -hmm. And that was what inspired me to 
to start Feminem, to just create a blog that people could find mentors and mentees and they could find connections and they could put articles about their experiences and how they had solved problems and we would see where it would go from there. The iterations that we have seen over the past three and a half years are remarkable. What we realized was as soon as we had a place to discuss these issues that was unaffiliated with a major organization or a major medical center, we could do anything we wanted. And so we started solving the problems that people brought up. So one of my favorite stories is when we realized that women were not being asked to speak the same way men were, right? So we had mantles. We had a very <laughs> notable exchange over a Google Hangout, which is a pre-podcast experience, if you will. And uh, we were discussing why a certain conference had no women speakers. And the conference organizer was very dedicated to equity, but just for, for lots of kind of small reasons, ended up with a conference with all men. And I realized that, you know, a lot of the problem was his connections, his network of able, willing, capable women speakers was too small. And how can we make a larger network for him and all conference organizers to find more women? And so we started the Feminine Speakers Bureau. And it's been remarkable to watch how many women are reached out to through that network who say that they got asked to be a keynote speaker at a conference because of that. Uh, and it's created a conversation around women speaking at conferences that I would argue has set the stage, <laughs> excuse my pun, for a, a metric to say that the next time anyone in emergency medicine walks into a room with no women speakers, it will be turned on the organizer as it's their fault, right? We have created such an open access network for finding women speakers that it would be impossible to say you could not find somebody willing, able, and capable to speak at a conference. And that's amazing, especially we're filming here today at SAEM, um, and to see how many amazing women are going to be speaking and taking part in this conference and in so many other opportunities across the country. It brings us to a point that I was hoping we could talk about a little more is the support network that FEMM has created and how that's influenced your life and your quality of your career in emergency medicine. So we've made a whole brand out of the idea of, of women sticking together in this space. I mean, I am here and we purposefully have a suite of women staying together in our, and you know, and because without each other, we couldn't do this. And, and I think that a lot of my friends who are now leaders in their own right in this world attribute our network of kind of mid-level, mid-career, although we keep getting older, uh, women who are doing different work but amplifying each other, supporting each other, peer mentorship, which is what it is, right? You know, residency teaches you that your, your cohort, your peer group is invaluable to your survival, right? Nobody who survives residency doesn't look to their residency class as being a formative group for them. But after you graduate, you're kind of alone, right? You have the people you trained with, and then you have some attendings that you work with, but you get to create a new network of people that can support you. Feminem was going to be and is a much larger like example of that, right? Anybody, any woman in emergency medicine feels connected to another woman in emergency medicine by virtue of the idea that we have this independent network for women that is unaffiliated with an organization or an institution. But at every level, 
we have these cohorts of women, and I, I gave this lecture at my conference. You know, it was called "Building Your Raft of Bitches," and it's an otter analogy that you have to go deep into the world of Twitter to understand. But it comes down to the idea that otters, sea otters, are this amazing animal that collect themselves in gender segregated groups, and they float in the water holding paws, and they have these big rafts they call them, so networks of female otters together, hundreds of them, as this large like, you know, entity in the water, and they prevent each other from drifting away and drowning. And they raise their children that way. And, you know, it's this idea that we are stronger together. The difference for us, I think, in how we do our work on gender equity is we absolutely need to do it with our non-female identifying allies. It is important that we do this work for all people in emergency medicine. It's better for our patients. It's better for our staff, ourselves. And gender equity is really about true equity. It's not only about making things better for women, because that's obviously our our first goal, but it's important that we make things better for everybody. Agreed. I had the privilege to hear you speak at the University of Rochester at one of our grand rounds just a few weeks ago, and we talked a lot about the Howard and Heidi dichotomy when women are applying for jobs. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot is bias. And uh, gender-based bias is a very real thing, unconscious and conscious, although some days I think it feels like it's already more conscious than unconscious, but that's okay. So uh, the Howard versus Heidi study was done at a business school, Columbia Business School, although it got its fame at Harvard. And it was basically a study that that was done around a female venture capitalist who was very successful. Her name was Heidi Roizen. And she had bought a bunch of companies and made a lot of money, and she was objectively successful. And so this professor decided to take her resume and her bio and her business profile and hands it out, except he changed, he gave half the class Howard, a guy, and half the class Heidi, who was her. And everybody thought she was objectively, or she or he was objectively successful, right? This was a resume of somebody that had done well in business. But when it came to these follow-up questions, do you want to emulate this person? Do you want to, do you like this person? Do you want to be like this person? Do you want to hire this person? It was astounding that everybody, although they were both successful, Everyone wanted to hire, be like, work with Howard, and nobody wanted to be like, work with, or hire Heidi. And it's because of likability bias, which basically says that we value traits that we think are successful. They're usually agentic traits. So things like decisiveness and assertiveness and, you know, promotion and like self-promotion. Yet, when we think of women, we don't value those qualities in women. We value communal traits, things like being a nurturer, a team builder, collaborative, you know, kind of like ones that bring people together. We don't value those in a leader. And so the likability bias just basically reminds us that we expect women to somehow be magically both competent, agentic, and communal, likable. And that is a very difficult line to walk. I would say. Uh, one of the best lectures that has ever been given at the Feminine Conference was given by a resident that, or an attending now who I trained under who uh, transitioned from uh, being a female physician to being a male physician after he graduated from residency. And he was one of the best residents I trained under when he was Becky. Uh, and then he transitioned and now he's Nick. And uh, he gave a lecture at our conference on what it was like to be a woman in medicine from the perspective of his existence now as a man in medicine. And the, the example he gives in the lecture is that learning to be a woman in medicine is like learning how to play a game on the hardest setting. 
And that's, this is literally only from the singular lens of gender. So forget all the other secondary and other issues that, that contribute to biases and, and increase the bias that people face. But just from a gender lens alone, he says he learned how to become a doctor on the hard setting. And then he transitioned. And it was like everything went away. His IQ went up. His boss promoted him. He ever, patients wrote better letters about him. His Prescani scores went up, all because of the magic that he presented as a male. And it's remarkable. Um, and it's been proven over and over again. There was a neuroscience who transitioned also, who literally would go to conferences, and he would say that his, when he would go and present his research as a man, he would be told that his papers were better than his sister's papers, who were his papers before he transitioned. It's amazing. It's incredible. So on that topic, what can women in medicine and in emergency medicine in particular do to advocate for themselves as they're looking towards those leadership roles? So I think that the first thing you need to do is figure out what makes you happy, right? What do you want to do? Who are you? It is real for all of us. This is not just for women, right? But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's important that as we figure out where our lives lead us, that we do the things that fulfill us and that we are excited about. You want to do those if you can get your job to pay you for those things, it's even better. I think that you have to have good mentors, right? You have to look to people that can help you get to where you want to be. I would argue that in my career, peer mentorship has been the single most important thing I have had because my peer mentors, and I have, you know, my otters, whatever you want to call them, the women that I am, that I am conjoined with and have grown up with are the most honest testament to if I'm on the right path. And if I'm concerned about something or if I feel insecure about a position or if I'm thinking about changing jobs, I go to them and they help me figure it out. I created my career reflective of my role as a woman in the world. So a lot of my transitions occurred around my life transitions, whether it was taking a job that allowed me to have children and be a mother. I have been married for almost 15 years. I created all kinds of schedule constructs around my emergency medicine shifts around my family's needs. Those are all necessary to your existence as a human. They're also not, they should not be gendered decisions. The more we get towards equity, the more we empower our male colleagues to be present during the birth and raising of their children, to create schedules that allow them to be present parents, to allow them to be present partners in their marriages with whoever they're married to or not at all. We will make it easier for women to not have to make those decisions priorities in their career. And that is when we will be much closer to a true equitable environment than we are now. Yeah. I loved when we talked before about men taking paternity leave and that that is something that can really kind of equalize the playing field, so to speak, for, yeah, I mean, for women. So this is something that they ask us all the time. So as, as we go out and do our world tour of grand rounds, which is what I feel like I do all the time, <laughs> which is great and so much fun. <laughs> You know, I get this question all the time, what can I do? And from the guys, because it's really, it's empowering to hear them ask. And I'm like, when you have a baby, stay home. And they're like, what? I'm like, the stigma, so the data shows that, you know, men take as much paternity leave as their, half, half as much as their boss, right? We know that. So if the, if the boss takes none, neither do they. If the boss takes two weeks, they take one. If we want to destigmatize maternity leave, which is a physiologically necessary response to birthing a human, <laughs> or for non-birth mothers, it's important also. For, if for children, it's important. For bonding relationships, it's important. We know that men who stay home for longer than three weeks, have a, that is the number for their significant relationship with their child going forward as far as like responsibility of child rearing. So if you think about it, if every guy takes three weeks off, 
which means that their bosses need to take six weeks off, right? You can do the math, right? Then the female that takes off 12 weeks, right, is really not stigmatized as much, although I'd like to get to even, to even leave. But yes, the most important thing a guy could do right now to create a more equitable environment in his family and in his workplace is to take time off of work for paternity leave. That seems like the easiest thing to get guys to do. Don't you think? Does anybody not want to take a little extra time off? Yes, they don't. And I'll tell you why. Most of it's going to be unpaid. And so that's a commitment, right? It's to say, because we know in the salary gap that one of the most reliable indicators of the gendered gap, the gendered salary gap in medicine is unpaid leave of absence. And so women are forced to take an unpaid leave of absence if they want to take parental leave. Men choose to not take it if it's unpaid. So that commitment to say, yes, I'm going to stay home because I want to be a partner to the women in my workplace and I want to be a partner to the person in my house, but it may be unpaid. And that's a burden I'm going to bear will neutralize the pay gap as well. What other factors have you seen in terms of the pay gap between males and females in emergency medicine and how we can combat that? So a lot of it actually is what I call, and I'm doing air quotes for a podcast, you guys can see this, is choices (laughs) people make. So choices are... I wish you were explicit. I'm so sure you're not explicit, but they're just BS, right? (laughs) So we, like I said before, the choices I made in my career early on were reflective of the needs of my family. The schedule I had, the job I took actually, because I knew that I needed to have control over my schedule and I needed to have control over my, you know, where I was academically and and, and I needed to, to, because I had responsibilities. Those choices come at a cost for a lot of people, right? Uh, you choose to work either all nights or no nights or part-time or 0.8 or whatever it is in order to get the thing that you need to create a viable work environment so you can do all the things you need to do outside of work. That's a really good way to contribute to the pay gap for people not to think about it, right? Press gaining scores are gendered, right? We know that. So if your salary is tied to your press gaining score, you're going to get you know hit from it as a woman. So a lot of things that we look at that are subtle ways patients being allocated not by pure round robin but by nursing leadership based on the team can contribute to salary gaps because the RVU generation from those patients can be different and women get more emotionally charged but less procedural patients whereas men get more procedural and less complicated emotional patients because they're quote unquote air quotes better at it right so all these things add up so if we want to look at the pay gap we really took the second layer of what contributes to our patient populations our clinical schedules our work environments and the idea of negotiation right so this whole concept that women don't negotiate well is biased right a woman walks in a room and comes to negotiate like a brinksman and says i'm not leaving here without this salary and the boss thinks she's a total bitch can i say that I just did. It's fine. It's, it's a medical <laughs> term. And he doesn't take her. He doesn't hire her, right? A guy walks in. He does the same thing. Oh, my God. He's totally assertive. I think that's great. He hires him, right? So the idea that women need to be better negotiators is really loaded. So I personally, and this is a controversial topic to say the least, don't think that emergency medicine careers should be negotiated. A skill as a negotiator is not a valuable skill in an emergency medicine doctor. You should reward skills that are valuable. All emergency medicine doctors should get paid on scale for their contribution. If you're an academically productive individual, if your CV is remarkable, if you've published a bunch of papers, if you're internationally known, that should contribute to a higher salary. Whether or not you stand in a room and are brinksman with the boss, why does that matter? Right? It doesn't. It doesn't. 
right? Yet we reward that behavior. And that perpetuates the narrative that that's the kind of behavior we think is valuable. But if we look at the data around good doctors, doctors that take really good care of patients, they're empathetic, they're communal, right? They are. They are. And so maybe we should reward those behaviors and not the agentic ones as much. Let's talk now about advice you have. If you were able to go back 10 years as a resident, as a medical student, what advice would you have for yourself? Oh my God. 10 years ago, I was in attending. <laughs> I just want to let that know. <laughs> so that makes me feel really old. <laughs> so I think the most important thing for me in my career in medicine is that it has always been rushed. It's kind of my personality. It's how I speak. It's how I move. But I didn't take any time off, right? I was always afraid of being behind the eight ball. And so I went straight from college to medical school to residency to my never taking a leave of absence from my job. Now I'm part-time, so it's a, little, it's a little space. But I probably would have taken some space as I was younger. I mean, when you're somebody who plans on being a parent biologically and give birth, you have all these deadlines in your head right? You're like, I need to give birth between this window and this window. It's a very tight, narrow window, right? And in a world where you can control that, <laughs> you spend a lot of time thinking about that window. And not everybody gets in that window. And that is a lesson that I have learned. I was in that window, right? I gave birth from ages 30 to 35 tight. You know, I had a lot of kids in that period of time, okay? But that informed almost everything I did in my career development until then and afterwards. And I would probably tell myself, to enjoy those moments a little more, to take some time, to take some space, because this is going to be here for a while. And other parts of my life aren't and weren't. I probably would have traveled more. And, and I don't want to say I would have been less ambitious, but I definitely would have been broader in my perspectives. I would learn more about politics or history or art or literature or anything. <laughs> Because I'm a very uninteresting person <laughs> when it comes to my academics. <laughs> now I'm learning it. <laughs> If we can, for a moment, yeah. tell us a little about the award that you are receiving at SAM. So I'm excited about this. I'm receiving the Advancement of Women in Academic Emergency Medicine Award, which is, I would argue, the most notable of the awards given for the influence of women in our field. And for me, this is probably something that I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of this. I think that I was a little bit shocked that I got it humbly, mostly because I think I'm the youngest person to get it ever, and I'm the first person to get it, I think, um, that has a relatively non-traditional academic footprint. So most of what I've done has been disruptive, innovative, and untested academically. We, I have published a fair number of papers with my cohort of people that I work with, but you know, I'm not a chair of a department. Right? I, I'm not NIH funded. I created something that people were kind of confused by. They're kind of still confused by it, right? My CV has almost pages of podcasts and blog posts and writing for places like the New York Times and the Washington Post. And that's not how it's normally been done. But people know the work that I've done. People feel the impact of what we've done. And that's cool. And I think that's why I was fortunate enough to get the award. So I'm really, really proud of it because I think that it, it speaks to a larger movement towards innovation, towards collaboration, towards a new way to teach, a new way to lead, a new way to 
collect people to coordinate and to, to build something. And for that, I'm really, really, really proud. As you should be. Thank We're you. proud for you. <laughs> thank you. We just want to thank you so much for being here with us today and for sharing all of your wisdom and knowledge. We hope that all of the young women listening will join us as well. Get involved, challenge yourself, um, and really take initiative to do things that haven't been done before. Yeah. And you have been such a fantastic example for us of how to do that. Well, thank you so much. I will say that this is really fun. It's really fun to, to meet everybody. It's really fun to see the impact of what we're doing. It's really fun to pass off the work and see other people think of it in ways we never thought of it. So if anyone out there has ideas or comes to the conference or whatever, like realize we are never, ever going to be sick of hearing more new, fresh ideas about how we can do things better. Very well said. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us.